Hey folks, before this episode of Podcast on Fire, I want to point you towards the store of our friends at Terracotta Distribution. At shop.terracottadistribution.com you'll find all titles from labels such as 88 Films, Arrow, Video, Cineasia, Third Window, Eureka and of course Terracotta's own line of Hong Kong, Taiwanese, Korean and Japanese titles. Find them at shop distribution.com and Podcast on Fire Network listeners get 10% off at checkout using the code ETERNALROSE. That's capital E-T-E-R-N-A-L, capital R-O-S-E, Eternal Rose, all in one word. Go to shop.terracottadistribution.com and now let's get on with the show. Welcome to Podcast on Fire on Final Justice and Dragon Fight. Stephen Chow enters the big boy film industry and promptly wins an award. And he's not even funny. He doesn't need to be funny. In this episode, we therefore take a look at the 1988 Danny Lee Cop action or Final Justice. And uh, he's been the man who plays cops with pre comedy Stephen Chow by his side. Also, Stephen goes to America with Jet Li, Dick Wei, and future Mrs. Jet Li to make Hong Kong action cinema noise on the streets of San Francisco. And that film is 1989's Dragon Fight. So those are the two um, filmography gaps that we're plugging here, plugging up those gaps. And um, can be with me to discuss these two early Stephen Chow films with little to no loves to be had. Maybe not from Stephen Chow, maybe from some other uh, filmmaking techniques within the films. Maybe those generated loves. But uh, regardless, with me to discuss all of that is Paul Fox. Hello. Hello, hello, and I uh, just want to say that Dragon Fight is also my Eurovision band name. So there you have it. That sounds like one of those um, fast-playing metal bands, <laughs> you know. We're Dragon Fight. Welcome. Hello, Cleveland. Uh, so yeah, that's a Spinal Tap reference, by the way. Thanks, Paul, for being on again. You, you've been helpful in terms of um, doing these early. We're plugging up gaps, and we're going back to the early stages of several filmographies we simply haven't done the beginnings of John Woo, the beginnings of Choi Ak, and beginning of uh, beginnings of Johnny Toe, and here we are with the beginnings of Stephen Chow, the actor. So it's been very helpful, and I've enjoyed that uh, streak of uh, looking at uh, early movies because I, I enjoy crafting a thread of um, of sorts. Um, in the case of Stephen, we can't go back all the way like you and i don't have access to english friendly streams of the entire catalog of uh, tv series he's done but i might as well ask that have you ever seen an early stephen chow tv series or that was never available in an english friendly way to you the earliest i've seen is um his 1990 series with lao ching one it's called um uh, it runs in the family. Yeah, is uh, his nineteen ninety series TV short series, only fifteen episodes, um, which was surprising because usually it's like twenty or twenty plus. Um, and uh, he did it with Lao Ching Wan. It's actually out there; you can find it uh, very easily on on official official YouTube channel. So I can recommend it. Not English friendly, unfortunately, on the YouTube channel. It 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 just has the it's in Cantonese with the Chinese subtitles, but 
there is a DVD set that supposedly has English subtitles. Um, I've only seen it in, you know, in the, in the sold out <laughs> sections of shops like Amazon and, and elsewhere, but it may pop up on eBay one day if you want to keep your eyes open for that. Was that TV drama or TV comedy? I say dramedy. Um, it's still not, you know, it's still very early in, in, in Stephen Chow's career. Um, 1990 was a big year for him. We'll talk a little bit about that later. And Lao Xingwan, they're both, you know, so, so young. They're both baby faces. And so, you know, it's, it's fairly standard, you know, kind of um, comedy slash drama. A little bit more emphasis on the drama than the comedy, but um, TVB light tends to be that way, so. Uh, we have a mention or two of series he did in the 80s leading up to his stardom in film. So uh, we'll certainly get some more mentions in. So let's get going. Some short uh, contact information first of all. And this is Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. And all our uh, episodes prior to this one can be found on podcastonfire.com. And we do bonus episodes uh, every now and again. And of course, you can find us on uh, iTunes or, or Apple Podcasts, uh, of course, or Stream us on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you find podcasts. So if you want to listen to the shows we did on uh, John Woo's early films and uh, Choi Hak's early films, uh, you can do so. Follow us on social media. Links are available on the website for uh, our Facebook uh, page and group and uh, Twitter account, Twitter feed, Instagram, and uh, so forth. And occasionally, I don't have as much time nowadays, I review a variety of uh, Hong Kong and Taiwanese films on my website, website sogoodreviews.com. Also, at the time of recording, you can, if you uh, if you are one of those uh, fancy and fantastic people who still enjoys uh, watching and buying Blu-rays, you can hear me and Phil Gillen on uh, a few of the 88 films releases, both for the US and the UK. At the time of recording, Monkey Kung Fu, not to be confused with Mad Monkey Kung Fu, is out, featuring our commentary, as well as Human Lanterns, uh, the famed Shaw Brothers Wuxia Horror Hybrid. That's both in the US and the UK. So uh, yeah, even you, Paul, you can go uh, to your local, uh, you can click to your local Amazon and, and um, pick it up and uh, listen to us if you like. It's not a requisite. I don't know if you're even interested in such a hybrid of uh, genres. It's a, it's a Shaw Brothers sort of last hurrah to get audiences back. So they, they went for horror for a while. But uh, do you remember watching Human Lanterns or had any interest in Yes, indeed. I have I have the uh, Celestial IVL release of that. And Cut to shreds. <laughs> I do want to get the, the version you guys have. I actually just picked up uh, a couple of their other, other titles that were on sale on Amazon. So uh, once another sale breaks, I will definitely be picking up uh, that to hear you guys talk about it. It's got boobies on the front. So uh, so do hide it from uh, the kitchen table as you, um, <laughs> as you come home with your, uh, or as you pick up your uh, mail, rather. It's got boobies on the front, so. Because it's that kind of film. So you got to hide the slipcase like immediately from uh, from the rest of the family. No, it's art. It's art. It's it's uh, it's, uh, it's classy filmmaking. Thanks for the support whenever you get to it. Uh, uh, so uh, we've done Armor of God. That's uh, for UK only. But as I said, Monkey Kung Fu, Human Lanterns and more titles to come. We've had a good run of uh, a variety of titles. The next ones, um, the next three that we've done, they're uh, quite different. One is announced. Uh, we uh, did the... Uh, commentary for the third Tiger Cage film and if uh, you're um, clued into in terms of who, who was in it who was the main cast you'll probably understand why me and Phil wanted to do Tiger Cage 3 because it stars MFW Michael Fitzgerald Wong 
Therefore, we needed to do our due diligence and um, catch up on that film. I had not seen Tiger Cage 3, as a matter of fact, so I wasn't aware of uh, the kind of gnarly stunt work MFW does in the third uh, Tiger Cage film. He's strapped to uh, to the roof of a car, uh, driving and we're veering across the road and uh, making turns, and that's Michael on the top of that car. So he's uh, he's all in working for uh, for Yoon Woo Ping uh, in that one, so that was rather delightful. Uh, but that'll be coming out in the UK sometime this summer, and it is announced as well. But let's, um, let's uh, take a music break, and uh, then we'll come back to talk about the first movie of this episode and that is final justice from 1988 starring danny lee and steven chow so sit tight and we'll be right back And welcome back in the first movie up for review, and this uh, Stephen Chow double bill is Final Justice from 1988. The plot from my review of the film, self-reliant cop Chung, played by Danny Lee, so it's not he's not leaser. He causes problems with his superior, played by Ricky Yee, when he arrests small-time hoodlum Boy, played by Stephen Chow, who is the key to catching a vicious gang of robbers, led by Xing Fui An and his psychotic sidekick, Tommy Wong. Uh, as Boy is about to be wrongfully charged, as part of the gang. Danny Lee's Chung has to bust him out of prison and use the next 24 hours to crack the case. A little bit of a, uh, a buddy film. I, I haven't seen 48 hours in a while, so I hope it's not a full-on rip-off of 48 hours, but it certainly has that basic dynamic of, uh, of uh, that buddy formula, if you will. But anyway, so for all intents and purposes, this is a Stephen Chow film, but it's not coming from his comedy identity that would bring him stardom, starting from films such as All for the Winner. But I thought it would be wise to sort of shortly chronicle his journey in the 80s up until this point in his uh, film career, which is quite a pivotal uh, point. And Stephen took to martial arts at a young age after seeing Bruce Lee in The Big Boss, boss which is sometimes easy to forget... Um, his martial arts skills because comedian and director kind of overshadow that skill set at times. Yes, he's uh, been a martial hero, of course, in Kung Fu Hustle and the likes, but uh, he really uh, isn't, uh, was and still is a devoted martial artist, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, Steven started out in TV after graduation, joining TVB in 1982, but he wasn't getting notices for being in dramas only. Because at one point, uh, Stephen, as well as little Tony, Tony Lung, hosted the children's show 430 Space Shuttle that aired on TVB throughout the 80s. And uh, apparently it acted as an ed- educational show about astronomy and connected topics. Uh, those two, if my understanding is correct, were among the, uh, like the roster of hosts that the show had. But I had the impression that uh, uh, the main or at least most prolific host was someone called Chung Kwok Kung also known as KK. But again, Stephen Chow, you know, I don't know how long his reign on the show lasted, but he was a fixture on the network, appearing in drama shows such as My Father's Son in 1988. In 1989, he did the Wuxia comedy series The Final Combat, starring Richard M and Francis M. But by that point, in 1989, he had started to do films as well. Man, I must well stop that. Do, do you have um, any like? Uh, I know you like to do deep dives because I know you. You're you're a nerd. 
as am I. So had you had any like interest? I like I want to find like the Stephen Shaw uh, four thirty space shuttle or the Little Tony four thirty space shuttle to get an idea of what it was like, or is it impossible to see? You think? I mean, I I, I didn't look for them. Um, I I kind of know the format of how those kids shows run um, from similar shows that I've seen over the years. And I mean, you, you can just kind of imagine it's not nothing as grandiose as something like, say, Sesame Street. It's really, you know, usually just hosts with uh, a guest, you know, coming on to talk. And sometimes they'll have kids on as well to talk with the kids about certain subjects. Um, no, no, like reboot in the um, new millennium, like full 30 special 2K. I mean, they have so many of these and... I mean, I never really stuck with any long enough. They're on throughout the course of the day, usually in the afternoon uh, when kids get off school. So they're definitely a staging platform for people trying to work their way up the industry. You know, so somebody coming out of the the Hong Kong Academy for Performing Arts or being groomed by TVB, you know, would be pushed there early on. And then they would try to work their way up into some either a hosting position, if that's the route they want to go or trying to get into um, you know, some TVB dramas as extras and then later as uh, supporting cast. I, I, I guess um, Stephen Chow fans would, would have like a passing interest in series like The Final Combat if, they, if that is comedy heavy uh, or not. But um, I, don't, I don't know if you've spotted if a series like that has gotten one of those English friendly DVD releases over the year, Final Combat. That one I've not found an English-friendly version of, um, which is surprising because I think, you know, you would think that with as popular as he is, that's one that somebody would have gone around and, and tried to reissue. Um, there may be fan versions or there may be versions from Southeast Asia uh, out there, um, but I've never stumbled across any as yet. But he did transition into film, as we said, and uh, Stephen had a supporting role in the 1988 actioner He Who Chases After the Wind, starring uh, Alex Mann. But uh, more notably, 1988's Final Justice made an impact. Not so much box office-wise as this Danny Lee star and uh, production. It's a magnum film. Only made about 8.9 million Hong Kong dollars on release, and that was far behind uh, the likes of Police Story 2 that earned 34 million. The Michael Hoy fast food comedy Chicken and Duck Talk made 29 million. And you had Chinese New Year hits such as It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World 2. And The Eighth Happiness um, grossing quite a bit. And The Eighth Happiness outgrossed uh, Police Story 2 even. So they were the big hits that year. However, come awards time, Final Justice and Stephen Chow received notices like you read about. First, he received two nominations at the Hong Kong Film Awards. And how is that possible? Well, they have two categories that... Uh, a new performer can get in. Best supporting actor in this case, and best new performer, literally. Uh, and he lost in both categories. Uh, Jackie Chung won for As Tears Go By in the best supporting actor category. And David Wu in uh, or from Starry Is the Night, which I believe is an Anhoi movie, won best new performer. But uh, otherwise, that year we had winners uh, such as Stanley Kwan's Rouge uh, taking home best picture and best director. Anita Moy won Best Actress for that same film. Sammo Hong got the Best Actor Award for his performance in Painted Faces. And Best Action Design was won by Jackie Chan and his stunt team for their work on Police Story 2. But the award that he did get, Stephen Chow, for his work on Final Justice was over in Taiwan during their Golden Horse Awards ceremony, where he won Best Supporting Actor. So what a, what a start out of the gate and getting a notices uh, to the degree where he's a multi-nominee 
and eventually a winner. Uh, director of Final Justice, Pokman Wong, was a staple of Danny Lee's Magnum productions, often playing an inspector, sergeant, part of the crew. Uh, but he made his feature as um, feature debut as director here. And he would direct Stephen Chow in the 1990 film The Unmatchable Match, also for producer Danny Lee. And in 1991's uh, Red Shield, starring Danny Lee and Lang Gaian. Uh, Pokman directed that, and that was the end of his run of uh, films. And I looked up my notes on Red Shield. It's uh, been a while, so I don't remember much. But uh, I wrote, after some violence with chainsaws uh, going against your superiors and heroic bloodshed shootouts, Red Shield manages to sink its teeth into the genre fairly well and delivers solid results on pretty much every front equally. Not a frequent director, but um, didn't do um, poor work necessarily. I have no memories necessarily of the unmatchable match other than it wasn't a wild Stephen Chow, Molay Tao comedy. It was still in that sort of middle ground where he was uh, approaching comedy but not developing his brand and making all the money doing so. That's it. Let's uh, move on to Final Justice and uh, let me deliver my short opinion first. It's quite basic and cliched even, but Parkman Wong I think keeps up the pace fairly well in his directing debut. It's the body formula with uh, Danny Lee and Stephen Chow working decently off each other. And, uh, you know, it's the expected beats of being enemies and then being pals. And then you have some select violent shootouts along the way. And uh, it's a fair balance and a decently entertaining time. Award-worthy, who's to say? He's not bad, but uh, it's not this uh, performance where you just uh, you, you're just knocked, knocked over or anything. But it's nice that he got uh, notices for a film role that he looks comfortable in. Him being serious, Stephen Daddies isn't um it doesn't look bad on him necessarily so um it's it's all it's all functional uh, but not a full-on classic or anything so let me throw over to you uh, in short uh, what did you think of final justice you know you go back to something like this if you didn't encounter it back in the day and you're looking up for you're saying oh i want to see early stephen chow and then you get into it's like where's stephen chow <laughs> you know it's not what you expect if you're looking for stephen chow because this is not the stephen chow that you um as a sort of international audience will really know what this is is really it's danny lee kind of riffing off the police story formula um with the you know sort of the 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 rough around the edges experienced cop who can't get along with his superiors who gets kind of embroiled in you know stuff that's going on um, but he's a good guy you know because he doesn't really want to come down hard on this kid who's potentially going into a life of crime you know it's that kind of story i mean danny lee is really a lot of the focus of of this and i think if you like danny lee you will like this movie more the the two of them really have some nice chemistry it's not groundbreaking what they're doing, you know, sort of this uh, mentor mentee kind of thing, buddy cop, you know, road trip. It's not really a road trip, but it's, it's that kind of, you know, dynamic that's going on. And I think they work well together. Um, there's, there's a lot of other parts of this film that we'll get into where, where I think it, it kind of falls apart um, with regard to comparing it to other films of this nature during this period yeah sure yeah it's a, it's a decent little distraction but uh nothing that ever stuck uh, with me other than that it it uh, gets me some like heroic bloodshed um, injections here and there so i'm good most of the time it's that kind of film so it's not exceptional but uh, i came up loving heroic bloodshed first whether john Woo or anyone else's uh, 
vision for action. So it very much uh, will do. Speaking of Danny Lee, uh, you had movies like Law with, two, Law with Two Faces that established him in a big bad way. He directed it. He won the Best Actor Award at the Hong Kong Film Awards. So he was well into his streak of playing cops by 1988 and he had done of course City on Fire where he's uh, he's a gangster and The Killer was looming obviously uh, that's a classic performance classic uh, team up I think he always looked good uh, he had a decent macho image uh, very much act- good acting chops even though sometimes it was like walking into scenes walk out of scenes as the cop or inspector type of scenes you know so sometimes it, was, it wasn't that thought out or that substantial but uh, I always thought Danny rose to the challenge when when challenged whether talking City on Fire again he's not a cop in that one but but I think out of all films that I was really impressed by and it's far into his run of playing cops uh, was Organized Crime and Trial Bureau for Kirk Wong which I always thought was both an exciting and fast-paced action film but it had substance and nuance and uh, Danny really responded to that so he could you know be this entertaining presence being the cop who just walks in and sometimes tortures people that, that, that often cropped up on, on his uh, in his films his uh, morality his ethics in terms of uh, how you squeeze the truth out of criminals he, I always was fond of him to a degree he, he wasn't dubbing himself uh, often or Maybe not at all. So it was always a surprise to hear that his actual voice is quite light. And uh, certainly not this, mm, I'm a cop. Uh, but it's uh, almost cute, his uh, voice. If you've seen the, uh, the movie Asian Connection, that takes place in Hong Kong and Taiwan. It's a fully sync sound film with him and Michael Chow doing both Cantonese and Mandarin because it, it does take place in Taiwan as well. So, so, so Danny is someone I watched a lot in my early exploration. So he's always been... A favorite of sorts um, but do, do, do you remember encountering him early in your exploration or watching movies on the big screen or not um yes but for me i mean i was never really drawn into the sort of hard-boiled cop stuff that much um i much prefer him in you know like mighty peaking man or <laughs> yes of course <laughs> I mean, it, go, it goes without saying, Inframan, Mighty Peaky Man, yeah. Oily Maniac, Battle Wizard are the best movies ever. So obviously, don't don't misunderstand my infatuation with him as a cop. It's, that's where you get your perfect cinema injections, if you will. <laughs> Depending on the film itself, uh, you know, if it's a Danny Lee star, I can, you know, take it or leave it. But it's got, it depends on some of the other elements going into it besides him. Um, I never really felt he had as charismatic a presence as someone like a Chai Yun-fat. He's not that action-oriented. So, you know, you're not going to get Jackie Chan-style stunts out of him either. So he's kind of in this middle ground um, where he's very capable. You know, he's definitely, certainly capable as an actor. But a lot of his roles, especially these police officer roles, just tend to kind of blend together, especially when you get in there and they're just calling him Lisa. It's like, okay. Yeah, after a while, it was just um, a little walk-on or supporting role or or even if main role, there was no challenge at all there. Yeah. But I will say one of his more recent films, um, not that recent now, but Sharkbusters is really good. But uh, we, we talked of uh, Danny Lee uh, clearly not dubbing himself Steven is, which is cool. Um, it's, uh, it's nice that he, like Chai and Fat, spent the time 
to uh, do the dubbing for his films uh, most of the time anyway, or a majority of uh, of the time. So it's nice to hear him and that familiar familiar voice uh, here as he uh, mixed uh, l- later mixed his um, uh, his uh, experiences in movies uh, between sync sound and um, and dubbing. So. Uh, uh, that, that's rather cool. So that that's a way into to this film, and and with Danny again, his character he's he's not concerned with image perfection in terms of uh, he's the he's not the perfect cop or anything. He's more of an action man. He uses excessive violence. He's not keen on writing reports or actually very good at it. There's a very funny bit where his superior complains about his childish scribbles. Like no one can read this. He's kind of anti everything. He just wants to get the job done on the streets and uh, throw away the book and all those uh, all those tropes of course but uh, it's decent enough i i, I do like when when danny isn't that typ- t- typical lee sir that uh, uh, that we got used to i mean for uh, when we came to organized crime and tribe bureau it uh, it might have looked that way but uh, it was still uh, one of his best parts um, and i don't think it was lee sir i think it was called rambo in, in OCTV, so uh, it was certainly um, something different. Uh, I don't know how much you came up watching like heroic bloodshed movies. I know you watch certain movies on the big screen, whether you know the the Once Upon a Time, uh, Once Upon a Time in China, once or Feng Saiyok or Future Cops or whatever. But uh, in 1998, uh, Hong Kong cinema was good at uh, making the choice of being either stylish, balletic, dance-like with its action, or on the flip side. They were also very good with the quick, sudden, and brutal violence. And for me, that's still a comfort thing. When I saw these movies, the John Woo movies, I wanted more of them, even if they were 90% lesser in quality. So you examine Ringo, you examine Kirk Wong's films, and then you get, uh, unexpectedly, films like this, who uh, takes the violence to this uh, very gritty, sudden uh, level, uh, which is... uh, how our uh, bad guys of this piece, uh, Xing Fuyon and uh, Tommy Wong, uh, delivers the violence, uh, the, the very street shootouts. Uh, uh, it, it's certainly not action-anxious, though, I would like to say. I mean, it has focus on the maverick cop, the driver, that boy is, and the gang murdering intermittently, and uh, the buying of weapons, uh, which will mean more murdering. But it has an action tint that it delivers during, like, three sequences. And... I don't know if I can ever explain that very well, that presence of Hong Kong cinema gunplay action being very comforting to me, but I'm sure you can relate to some degree if you came up watching something and were blown away by something, uh, like John's films in this case, you, you are drawn to a particular era's way of executing violence and uh, therefore Final Justice will never be boring to me because when it does kick into high gear with those street shootouts where uh, we have you know squib work and uh, loud noises and civilians getting in the way i think those scenes without being john woo stylish are very much compelling i think and uh, works with the tone of the film because um, if you want to give l- l- listeners this impression if i ask you this question is this film action and comedic just because stephen chow is in it or is there a more unified balance you know, like an action thriller body balance going on here? Or how would you describe the film, you think? I wouldn't say it's comedic. I mean, you do have Stephen giving some early glimpses of 
potential, I would say, in, in some character quirks and things um, that he's doing on screen here. But I wouldn't call it out out and out comedic. I mean, there there are interactions he has where he's kind of talking back to people um, or he's, you know, kind of reacting to something with a sort of a physical reaction that I think anybody who's seen his later films will come to recognize, you know, but I, I guess they get blown up over time, you know, and, and get they get enhanced um, from kind of what we see here. So what, what you do see is you see, a, you know, a very young actor who's probably give, being given direction, but also probably doing what he feels is kind of natural as an actor to do um, in, in certain certain moments. And they're probably going along, you know, with what works. It's interesting because as a director, I mean, um, Parkman Wong He's got a lot of credits, you know, as an assistant director um, and and executive producer and uh, some some other things later on. But, um, you know, this was really his first film as a director. So it's hard to gauge, you know, how much give and take there is with a new director and with a new actor. And with his producer, which is which is Dabney. Yeah. I, I think probably Steven is being given some direction, but also he's probably, you know, uh, stretching out and, and, and trying what he feels is right, even though he's a new actor. And obviously it was something that worked because, you know, he got awarded for it and, and he got recognition for it. Um, but Parkman, I think if you look at his career as a director, very short, three films and, and I'm out and he still has acting credits. I mean, he's, you know, Listed, I haven't seen it yet, but he's listed on the most recent release of uh, the new Kung Fu Cold Master. <laughs> oh, the one with uh, the, the 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 big two part that no one yeah. no one liked. So, I mean, he's still out there. He's still you know doing bit parts here and there. He can be a presence in those. Uh, I think he's in OCTB, and he, he's got weight to him, and he's got um, the intimidation factor down in that one. Uh, in in the various uh, interrogation sequences that are not pretty and that that all, all obviously means that Danny Lee is not afraid to show that he believes in this stuff it, it, you know it doesn't turn up here but if you remember OCTB or even remember watching the category 3 movie Twist with uh, Simon Yam and uh, Danny Lee they, they do some vile stuff there that's uh, not constitutional let's just say and uh but but he can be uh he, he can be a good comforting a good uh good presence in those uh those cop films but uh danny lee's politics uh, it, it it's a discussion for for another film you know like octb or like twist but um it's interesting that he wanted to clearly promote the image of being a cop but he wasn't afraid to um to show the dirtier side to it, you know, beating people with a phone book, uh, with a phone book against their chest and beating a hammer on top of the phone book. But in Twist, uh, they um, they shove a, a water hose up uh, Simon Yam's uh, bottom and turn it on and uh, get the truth out that way, you know. So think what <laughs> think think of that what you will in terms of his uh, politics. Uh, but but I but I do agree, by the way. On Steven, I mean, he's not teasing the future comedic stick that much here in the body po- uh, body portion. He's a uh, more of a street smart, wise guy, and he's acting as the contrast to Danny Lee. But uh, I do think he shows comfort in the frame and the verbal back and forth and the wise guy reluctant attitude. I think that there's a good scene with James Yee 
yelling over him. I mean, uh, but he shows great, great indifference to, and I think uh, that those are good little moments for Stephen Chow showing his comfort working film here. That heroic bloodshed stuff. I mean, I'm sure you're a fan of the various John Woo and Kirk and Ringo movies, but well, what was that ever a genre when the when Hong Kong cinema gets its uh, what's it gets its guns out? Literally, was that ever like? Yeah, this is unique, and I'm 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 enthralled by this. Um, it's appealing. I want to explore that. Or what, what was your exploration back in the day when you sort of started to discover the various facets of Hong Kong cinema, the various contrasts of Hong Kong cinema? Well, yeah, this was. I mean, 1988 was a big year for me because that was the year that I actually I wouldn't say discovered Hong Kong cinema, but discovered contemporary Hong Kong cinema because I had long watched you know Shaw Brothers stuff that had trickled over and various dubbed versions. Um, for years as a kid and of course you know Bruce Lee and early Jackie Chan stuff that that got translated over but I 1988 was the year that I actually found the cinema showing Hong Kong films as uh, current Hong Kong films as a kind of midnight movie this could have played therefore yeah well this this was a, a few months earlier I actually discovered the cinema I want to say in like November and the film they were showing at that time was Gunman right which um you know, talk about a film to start out with. Now, even though it's a remake, and and I recognize that going in, it was like, you know, come on. Untouchables. It was, uh, yeah. It was, uh, you ever bring a gun to a knife fight? No. It's, uh, <laughs> the, um, the whole thing just knocked my socks off, you know. And I had seen Untouchables, and I was like, ah, you know, okay, you know, it's a mafia movie. I'm not big on mafia films. I watched this thing. I was like, what did I just watch? I know it's not a highly lauded film, especially as a remake, but I, it just, you know, at the time it knocked my socks off, came back the next week and they were showing, uh, uh, bloody brotherhood. Okay. And Andy Lau. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm sold. I'm in, uh, I just more of this and I was hooked and, and that's what, you know, ultimately pulled me in. So yeah, that was the, like the tail end of, uh, 1988. And, um, these movies were coming, um, I guess, you know, they do their runs in Hong Kong and then they get um, canned up, you know, in cans and shipped to different. Would you have to go would you have to go to Chinatown specifically to see these movies? No, there's no Chinatown here. This was just a, a this is just a um, it was called the Cinnamon Draft House. It was kind of like it was a movie theater, but it, it didn't have movie theater seating. It had like tables and you could order food. And um, it was this weird, you know kind of hybrid cinema experience it's like pre-alamo draft house uh, yeah deal with would, ordering food they didn't show first run movies you know usually they showed like you know movies that had already played for played their run in the big cinemas and so what but it wasn't a discount cinema it wasn't like a dollar cinema or anything like that but um it was owned by a, a chinese owner and i guess you know he decided at some point they were going to run hong kong movies for the local Chinese in the community. And I just stumbled across it looking for something to do in the newspaper, you know, and, and I remember the ad, it just said Chinese movie. That's all it said, you know, midnight. And I was like, Chinese movie. What does that mean? I thought I was thinking, you know, okay, Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Shaw brothers, that kind of stuff. Cause that's what I was used to seeing on TV. So I drove over there, you know, I'm going in to buy a ticket and I guess it was the owner or the manager. This is a, a Chinese movie. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I want to see. He's like, but it, it's gang, it's gangsters. I was like, gangsters? He was like, yeah, it's it's, it's not kung fu. It's gangsters. I was like, okay, I don't care. And you know, the the rest is history. So, 
Yeah, uh, those uh, experiences, um, they, they never go away. Were, were you ever so diligent that you started saving ticket stubs and things like that? Or? Um, they didn't, you know, because it was, a, they, they kind of did, they didn't do like printed tickets like you have today with the name on it. But what they had was were these Xerox copy flyers, okay? And it would say like what's playing this week and what's playing the next week. And I saved a but ton of them. They were super poor quality, but you can still kind of make out like, oh, once upon a time in China and and stuff like that. And I mean, I look at some of the guys over in some of the um, Facebook groups, I think like um, the Hong Kong Cinema or Love Hong Kong Cinema group post the flyers they used to get out in California, you know, where this was like a really big deal and they're nice. They're like color and, you know, yeah, these are like fifth generation, you know, totally cockeyed uh, Xerox copies of stuff and you could just kind of make out and some of the Chinese was like handwritten and stuff you, c- you couldn't really make out the face of Jet Li you know you could just see like oh there's like an image there and um, but yeah I kept all of those and if you had seen this on um, on the big screen you might have thought the same as you did today that it's uh, that it's functional speaking of Parkman's direction I think it's it is very much functional it, the films rolls along the film rolls along without spiking I think it, it, it doesn't fully thrill but it's decently narrative focused and it's 90 minutes it's over and done with but but again the street shootouts um, shows that the uh, Yumbun's action design I, I I I do find it quite appealing. It's dangerous. It's sudden. It's uh, cruel. Uh, the arranged uh, scripts uh, make it a fairly gritty time, so it isn't John Woo in style. And and of course the movie ticks off the tropes, but it's never really truly bothersome either. You're you're off the case. I don't think they had a hand in your badge type of uh, scene or anything, but. Uh, it, it it never really bothered me because it's efficient uh, enough. And the street shootouts also also are arranged. I forgot to say in daytime amidst the people and again they're very sudden so uh, I think that that makes for an for an effective image uh, for the film and uh, and and Parkman gets us to groan a little bit as uh, we have a scene where a bullet is removed from an open wound a knife cuts the wound open and then I think Tommy Wong put, put, puts his fingers inside that wound so that that's good makeup for as long as they can show it where you go really uh, but uh, you got to do what you got to do to save your partners in crime uh, I guess. And I think the interesting thing, too, is because, as you just said, as long as they can show it. OK, so 1988 was another uh, big year for Hong Kong cinema, because at the time of this release, um, which I think was back in, in June of, of uh, June, July of, of 88, there was no category rating system that would get implemented later this year, the same year in 88, um, around November 10th. I think if my memory serves. So what you get in this is you get some of that very visceral violence. You get a little bit of sexy time, you know, a little bit of nudity and all with no stipulation that eh, you bring your kids, you know, yeah, you, you just don't know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it might've been censored as a matter of fact, yeah. but there was no rating as you said um, quite yet. And the, the first local movie, I believe that got this was, was sentenced to hang. But I, I read somewhere back in back in my research, and I'm just pulling this right out of my butt, that the, the first film that played with a Category 3 rating, and this is a big maybe, so I'm not saying this is fact, but the first film that played with a Category 3 rating in Hong Kong was uh, Scorsese's uh, Last Temptation of Christ. Don't quote me on that, but I read something that that was the first like film that came out with a rating, obviously not a local film, but uh, that, that might have been it. So... Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think too, 
based on other films that I saw from this era later, I, I don't I still don't think even with the sexy time, a little bit of nudity, um, the violence, I don't think this would have made it to category three. I think this no. would have been a two B. But by today's standards, okay, the Hong Kong of right now, yeah, no, it's it's a it's a three. Because <laughs> the times have changed. And and sentence to hang didn't get it for violence, he got it for nudity. It is full frontal female nudity and sentence to hang. Uh, very brief, but it's still there. So he never got it for for violence either. Um it was a true crime film, so a true crime would be associated with Category 3, as we'll discuss in, when it came it comes to the director of our second film, what he would be known for. Uh, no other notes other than uh, you noticed a bunch of gaffes, because apparently you were having no fun with the movie, so you just started... Uh, <laughs> That's not true. I had I had fun. Like gaffes, I, I gaffes, had a lot of gaffes, fun with amateurs, amateurs, amateurs. <laughs> I noticed one, and I, I wonder, uh, if you have a chance to watch this, um, watch this shootout where Tommy Wong is hanging out of, uh, out of a car, shooting uh, an automatic uh, machine gun fire. The top gun, top part of the gun, I, I don't know what what the part is called the, the, uh, the barrel the, the barrel just breaks off during the car chase doesn't really break off it's just it explodes yeah. <laughs> while he's firing and he continues to, continues to fire for you know a good couple seconds and you notice Tommy just for a frame or two looking down it's like whoops that's not supposed to happen and then you cut to him uh, inside the car saying obviously they can dub this in later but there is dialogue saying oh these guns are useless man and I wonder but uh, perhaps it doesn't matter if we know or not. If that's a gaff that they thought like, well, we, we don't have time to redo it because the gun is broken. We don't have another prop. So yeah, we're done with that. So Tommy, just say something. And that gets us out of trouble. Uh, we can just say that the, they, they overpaid for, uh, for shitty guns. And good. Cut print, moving on. So um, I don't know, because I've never seen that in a Hong Kong movie where a gun just disassembles in front of our eyes. So yeah, that was amusing. I, I don't know if it makes sense to talk of the gaffes that you just listed off with a thousand screen caps in private, but I don't know if it makes sense to list that off in oral form, but you're welcome to, 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 to mention some funny stuff that you noticed if you like. Well, one of the reasons I would love for this to be remastered in HD is because I was wondering if there's just because this the gun itself I don't know exactly if it's like an M16 or or, or what but it was a you know it was an autom- automatic uh, rifle with a clip and it's the same gun that at some point at the end uh, Danny Lee gets a hold of and he just starts like <clears throat> letting bullets fly at Tommy Wong's character and I mean like a couple magazines worth. And, you know, so they they have him on film, you know, shooting, obviously probably shooting blanks, but you can see shells getting ejected. And I'm wondering, okay, that's the same gun. Maybe they shot that scene first because it was a static scene. Then they took that gun, gave it to Tommy Wong another day, you know, a couple days down the road. And because of it got so overused by Danny Lee that maybe it just, you know, it just bust in that shot. And that's it. They only had the one gun. So that's all. They weren't going to buy another gun for the or rent another gun for the, for the shot. I, I, so. I did read, um, maybe it was on a case-to-case basis, but what, what John Woo talked of uh, when getting guns, at least for the killer, he couldn't get them from Hong Kong, or in Hong Kong. He had to get get them from like England or America. So I, I don't think uh, around this time there was a case of uh, just run down the prop house and get another. Uh, it seems like what they had, they if it broke, then it broke. So they had to be clever about it then. Uh, so solve it in dubbing afterwards, and they and they certainly did that. I mean, it it's not like it messes up continuity or anything. 
is just very amusing there. I've never seen the gun, these Hong Kong, these perfect Hong Kong cinema gunplay heroes, and their guns just break on them <laughs> like that. That was fun. Yeah. And then the, the the brief momentary smile of Tommy Wong as he starts to crawl back out, you know, because he's like hanging outside a car window. As he starts to slowly get back, he you can almost see him break up laughing as he's looking down at the gun. It's it's a great little shot. And it's funny too because Tommy Wong is a very funny guy. Can be psychotic, he is here, but he is also very funny, so you can sort of see the, the lighthearted side for a few frame, frames there. So it's quite funny. Going back and watching this is great for anybody who loves films of this era, especially if you're somebody who keeps up with contemporary cinema to some extent, because the first thing that kind of sucks you in is the sort of 80s synth pop uh, soundtrack that they have going on here. You know, and it's 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 certainly nothing nothing spectacular, but it's just something that made me feel good. And I mean, the music is done by a group called the Melody Bank. So it's, <laughs> you know, that kind of brings you back to this era. And and it, it's just a sense of nostalgia for anybody who's watched a lot of movies from this period and then gone on to watch more modern films, you know, your elections and your infernal affairs and stuff. And then just to hear that kind of music and get sucked back to this era is nice. Um, there is a scene later where they're getting ready to kind of try to take down the gang, uh, Tommy Wong and, and, and the guys, Xing Fuyan. And the cops show up on the scene and they're standing around. And I, I did a double take and I actually did a couple screen caps and sent it over to Ken. Cause I was like, I don't know what's going on here. They've got, mobile phones or big police walkies you know because it's this is the brick era of of phones they're wrapping them with like paper bags i'm like why, why are they doing this and then at first i thought okay maybe it's because they're trying to be inconspicuous they don't want the public and the people to see that they're doing getting ready to do a police action but then later when the whole thing uh, goes to hell the police inspector is still talking through it with the paper bag it's like eh. Did was it just a fake phone, a toy phone? They didn't couldn't actually have the the actual props, and they were just trying to hide that fact. It's we're kind of getting used to this system now. Let's uh, let's uh, continue on with this. <laughs> let's wrap wrap all our tech in paper. Yeah, um, there's a po- very cheap police siren sound effect whenever the cop the, the cop cars are like driving down the street. That really it just sounds like they they captured the UFO sound from a Space Invaders game. It's just really kind of tinny and, and cheesy. Well, speaking of that, did you notice the interior decoration in Danny Lee's house? Along the walls, among other things, he has tons of helmets because he drives a motorcycle, rum rum. He has uh, one of those uh, police uh, red and blue siren uh, thingies, units. That's usually on top of a car, obviously. (laughs) In his house. That was probably his actual house. They just went and filmed there for... The, the sake of ease <laughs> you know the, the, the actual real life his professional life does turn up in a way what i mean by that is danny drives around with a helmet with the magnum productions logo on it which he does in the killer as well and that is a magnum production so he puts the brand out there yeah. and not just at the top of the film so danny's thinking he knows what he's doing i mean like i said this film isn't really super memorable but um because if you're a completionist you want to go back and you want to see all of danny lee's films or you want to see you know where um, Steven sort of got his first big recognition in a film. Um, it's it's not not entertaining. I will say that I loved it because of the bad guys. Um, Tommy Wong, Xing Fuyuan are great in this. I think it's one of the only films where they were kind of both heavies 
together that I can that comes to mind. I'm not sure if they they start to, but they both went off and sort sort of their own directions to be even bigger heavies in in bigger films um, later on. So it's kind of great to see them playing off each other here. And like I said, the chemistry between uh, Danny Lee and Stephen Chow is really good, especially as you get in sort of the second act and the later act of the film. Um, I that's what really kind of sold me that and 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 the the gang. The thing I re- had a really hard time with though is the angry police chief. I mean, he's fine, but he is so one-dimensional as a character. He basically comes in day one and he's just got it out for for Danny Lee, which makes no sense. I could understand if if the Danny Lee character was like this lounge around guy who was, you know, skipping work and 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 not doing his job, but he's actually out there. He's got all this experience, you know, it's it's like the officer versus the enlisted guy argument. You know, he's been on the ground 10 years. He knows what's what. He's getting the job done. He's making arrests. He knows when people are scamming. And it's like the police chief just doesn't like him, even though he would be making the department look good because of the work he's getting done. So it just it never really made sense to me. They never really get into anything deeper why he has this really kind of hate grudge against him just because he can't write his reports well or something and he doesn't sign the uh the time book or whatever it's just it that that part of it didn't really work for me um he has essentially the same role in uh, organized crime and trial bureau where they try to bust danny lee's uh, unit of uh, using excessive uh, uh, excessive uh, violence while interrogating and uh, like he is uh, with the internal affairs and things like that uh, but he, he pops up in the Magnum films he's in the killer as well more of a silent uh, killer in that one rather than the Rottweiler that he that he is here he he was good at that uh, he, uh, they both knew his strengths uh, I suppose so uh, and yeah yeah my, my final note that uh, William Ho is here as part of the uh, trio of bad guys uh, in one scene he is on top of a prostitute and uh Sex scenes would be somewhat frequent for William Ho in the 90s in various Category 3 films because he, he turns out he's really good at playing vile villains. Uh, I believe he's passed now. Um, I, I think, anyway. Yeah, he's passed away. Uh, so he's in Daughter of, Daughter of Darkness and uh, Brother of Darkness and the likes. And uh, William find that little, found that little um, sort of niche, if you will. And it was really effective being as vile as he was in in those movies in particular daughter of darkness bunch of really disturbing sexual violence and uh, demeaning sexual violence but uh, he uh, he got his comeuppance uh, that's for sure uh, but yeah an early role uh, for him here you can see him in prison on fire and the likes as well playing one of the prisoners in, in that one so uh, a character actor face that uh, was around at the time uh, okie dokie well as for availability of uh, final justice not to be confused with the 1997 lao ching one film of the same name in uh, 1988's final justice was uh, issued on dvd by universe and joy sales uh, respectively it is also currently available on hong kong blu-ray but uh, i can't confirm whether it's true high definition or an upscale or how the remixed audio fares because it looks like it has no original mono option uh, we didn't watch that. We watched an older DVD version of it, uh, which uh, was uh, mono, mono, or at least the remix had no added uh, added stuff that uh, distracted or anything like that. So, but yeah, uh, no other options uh, out there. The Blu-ray might suffice. Hopefully, it sounds okay as well. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, the first Stephen Chow film awarded and all. We're gonna jump ahead one year and uh, do a major geographical jump, of course. 
to uh, one year later, 1989, and uh, on the other side of the world, San Francisco, we find Stephen Chow, Jet Li, Dick Wei, and uh, Nina Lichi uh, doing uh, doing uh, action on the streets of uh, San Francisco. And that movie is Dragon Fight, and we'll talk about that after a music break. Welcome back for the second movie of this episode is Dragon Fight from 1989, also starring Stephen Chow and plot from my review of the film. Jimmy, played by Jet Li, and Tiger, played by Dick Wei, are on a martial arts demonstration tour in San Francisco. Tiger clearly feels left out and uh, he's not in the, spot- in the spotlight as much as his uh, friend and he decides uh, that he doesn't want to board the plane going home. Jimmy spots him, trying to leave the airport, tries to talk him out of it, but ends up being accused of uh, a murder of of a policeman that the tiger kills as he flees the airport. After a fortunate uh, escape from the police, uh, Jet Li's Jimmy ends up in the house of Andy, played by Stephen Chow, and his uncle, who runs a grocery store, while Tiger tries to climb the ladder within the gangster organization Marco, played by uh, the producer of this film, Henry Fong, heads. And their paths are about to cross again uh, with elements uh, such as the undocumented immigrant Penny, played by Nina Lee, and a bag of cocaine playing an important part. So, we talked of what led up to Stephen Chow's uh, breakthrough or uh, up, up until Final Justice, and I suppose we should do the same for, for Jet Li here. Um, so, leading up to his breakthrough in the mainland Chinese martial arts film The Shaolin Temple, he had uh, joined uh, and been a part of the Beijing Wushu team at a young age, as his uh, talent had been spotted uh, and scouted and uh, was given a chance to, to, to develop further that way. Uh, it led to being the national all-round champion, Wushu champion during the mid and uh, latter half of the 70s, uh, despite competing against adults. And the Chinese national Wushu team uh, even performed for President uh, Nixon and uh, at the age of 18, uh, uh, retired from competitive wushu due to a knee injury. But he wasn't done uh, as, a, as a public figure, as a superstardom in films loomed. And uh, his uh, debut film meant uh, quite a breakthrough, and that was uh, Shaolin Temple from 1982. And it, if my research is correct, it was a product of historical and political timing, and you, you could weigh in on this is, if this feels correct, if this seems correct. Uh, so with the Cultural Revolution uh, ending and political changes taking place, uh, the Hong Kong-based company uh, Chung Yun Motion Pictures successfully brought to the screen something somewhat rough. It's not a perfect film or anything, but uh, it, it was of, of genuine importance, uh, Shaolin Temple. And uh, as it screened on the mainland, it was a rare, even first glimpse of martial arts cinema for a mainland Chinese audience, uh, because if my research is correct, this kind of product was reportedly banned under prior rule. And uh, the youngster Jet Li broke big time, uh, uh, wowing audiences with his presence and skills. And uh, he was to be known by his English name Jet Li subsequently. Uh, apparently Shaolin Te- Temple took three years to complete. Um, it utilized beautiful sights of the real Shaolin Temple and the Chinese landscape, so it was a, an attractive looking film. And wisely, uh, the Hong Kong-based 
company that uh, that made this they didn't inject anything difficult or groundbreaking genre wise it's uh, it's a revenge tale simple approachable but physically astonishing really and the film broke box office records as did the 1984 sequel kids from shaolin featuring jet lee in drag so hardy horror comedy and uh the conclusion of the Shaolin Temple trilogy, they are unconnected, but um, they made three of them uh, that you can sort of box up, I suppose, in a set. And that film was Martial Arts of Shaolin for director Lao Ga Lung. And they, oh, I, I can just stop there. We're, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but does that seem familiar, uh, the, the, the thing of uh, martial arts cinema not uh, being allowed in, um, in China during prior rule, that kind of entertainment? Uh, do you think that matches up with, with your knowledge of... Uh, political uh, politics and history oh yeah i mean if you if you study the cultural revolution or uh chinese history between you know 1949 and um, the 1980s after you know mao's death in the 70s and then you get this sort of power shift and uh, uh deng xiaoping comes in and you know opens the doors for reform and, and all of that starts to happen you do get a shift in the kind of cinema that's being made, both um, in Hong Kong and in mainland China. And so you start to get some things that uh, you know, cross borders here. And it, it's you know interesting to see that happen. Also interesting, too, that this particular film that we're talking about, Dragon Fight, uh, comes out in 89, uh, just a few months after um, you know the, the famous events in Tiananmen. Mm. You've got this narrative about defection, and stuff going on and it begs the question of was this film in production prior to Tiananmen or was this something that they kind of rushed out post Tiananmen was this planned well the thing is that what, what I read and we'll get to it uh, uh, if I understood it correctly Jet Li was in America shooting two films in 1988 though they shot The Master which went unreleased as we'll talk of in a bit uh, um, it was released eventually and uh, and this one at the same time uh, maybe in the same city. I don't know if they jumped uh, to Los Angeles for, for for the master and then San Francisco. But what they shot is one thing, may, and what they post produced might have been another thing because they have time to change up things in post production, and maybe they did so after the events of uh, Tiananmen. But uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, I think the, these productions, uh, the two I mentioned, including this one, are closer to 1988 in mm. terms of filming. It's it's interesting that you have this kind of narrative with what's going on and with real world events, and you. Compare and contrast that to something like the Shaolin Temple, which was, you know, kind of about the cooperation and the opening up and, and stuff. And so you have this this period coming to a close kind of uh, with this film, which is interesting. And uh, Jet Li found himself here in, in the little bit uh, past the mid-80s point after making Martial Arts of Shaolin released in 86. He found himself at a crossroads because traditional films he had performed in were not the flavor of the audience anymore. Um, the the mid eighties market uh, marked a shift uh, in uh, in Hong Kong uh, in terms of uh, genre, as we'll talk of in a, in a little little bit. Uh, but uh, Jet Li took on directing his only directing venture, I believe, with Born to Defense, which was reportedly a troublesome production uh, to to get to the screen. Uh, but in Hong Kong, Jackie Chan dominated. John Woo and Charlie Fat and and the likes did, and that genre and the golden age of cinema with all its colors, including you know. The colors that a movie like Final Justice provides. That dominated and it meant that Jet had trouble finding a place. So um, at the end of the 80s he um, filmed two productions in America and most mem- uh, most memorable was Dragon Fight 
probably on, on a personal level. Well, one movie went unreleased uh, until uh, the early 90s. Uh, but Dragonfight uh, probably was more memorable on a personal level since he met his future wife Nina Lee, working on the film, who is our leading lady here. And um, he also collaborated with uh, an early collaboration, that is, with uh, Choi Hak uh, on uh, The Master. That uh, came out in 1992, and uh, because uh, it was a modern take on the Wong Fei Hong legend set in San Francisco. But um, for whatever reason, uh, it's not terrible, actually. It's a, it's a cheesy film, but it's certainly not terrible. But for whatever reason, it was decided that it was not suitable for release. But uh, after Jet had uh, broken through, finally, in uh, or had his second breakthrough, his second wind with a traditional period-appropriate Wong Fei Hung movie in the form of Once Upon a Time in China. The Master was dusted off and released in 1992. I, I haven't, uh, I mean, I have some DVD editions and Blu-ray editions, so I haven't uh, done an, an in-deep uh, look at uh, what the theories were for The Master, why it was, because it, it isn't terrible, it isn't like this uh, film that uh, is unwatchable or anything. So, so I wonder why it was um, deemed unsuitable for 88 release but maybe the extras on the on the various uh, dvds and blues uh, will uh, uh, make that clear i think i mean do you remember watching that at any point maybe on the big screen the master the master with uh, jet lee and john Wah? never saw that one on the big screen only got to that one in sort of uh, you know uh, later video releases because it's 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 this b b movie action man a modern action but jet, jet is in his prime and i think he looks splendid john Wah looks uh Splendid, and uh, of course it's a widely exaggerated and badly acted film. Uh, lots of bad uh, Western acting, and Jerry Trimble in full uh, full mullet mode, and uh, but full full on uh, beast mode. And I think the master has always been very very fun. So I wonder why why nineteen eighty eight was such a bad place for it. But uh, but hey, it's a story for another time and uh, uh, research for another time. But. Uh, and so uh, for Stephen Chow, as we said, well, was in his, because he's, he's in this as well, it's not just Jet Li, he uh, was in his period uh, leading up to stardom. Um, uh, you know, he had his award with Final Justice and uh, was uh, approaching his um, comedic breakthrough. So um, success was around the corner for both of these, uh, Stephen Chow and, uh, and Jet Li. If you see the directing credit here, uh, some of you are maybe followers of uh, cult Hong Kong cinema, maybe. It seems like this movie is a has an unlikely candidate for director because it's um it's helmed by Billy Bloody Tang. He would maybe not critically, maybe not financially, but certainly within the cult cinema community, looking for more extreme Hong Kong cinema, he would find a place there, would make his name there, and uh, have his voice on screen there because he became known for making Hong Kong true crime nasties such as uh, Doctor Lam for Danny Lee and with Danny Lee, it's a co-directed. He did Run and Kill, Red to Kill, and uh, when the Category 3 year of the former half of the 90s faded, the, the visually gifted Billy Tang, I, I thought, did respectable and fun work in the gangster genre that uh, popped up in the wake of Young and Dangerous, because he made movies like Sexy and Dangerous, Streets of Fury with a, with a young uh, uh, Mr. Hong Kong Cinema, uh, Louis Koo, and Street Angels with Simon Yam and uh, Billy passed away in 2020 and I know you haven't done a deep dive on his nasty films but I know I think I believe we convinced you on the show no not convinced you like put you in a room and like we, we're gonna make you watch a movie but I think based on our discussion of Run and Kill I believe you sat down and uh, felt that was approachable 
as extreme as it is. Uh, do you remember seeing run and kill any memories from it, or and have you dared to venture into the likes of uh, Doctor Lamb and Red to Kill and things like that? They burned her. Yeah, they burned her. Yeah, very much. Are so. you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I did. I did uh, watch it, and um, I don't regret watching it. It's not something I could watch again. Um, and it's just this weird, terrible yet also comedic thing that exists. It's, uh, I, it's, it's an extreme dark comedy in my eyes. Uh, you haven't experienced bad luck like uh, Ken Cheng's bad luck in that uh, in that one, uh, Run and Kill. That is. Uh, yeah, I, I still haven't. I still haven't uh, built up the fortitude for um, Red to Kill yet. Um, maybe one day. It, it's a tough one, man. Uh, it, it's really hard. To, to watch uh, professional as all uh, I mean sync sound even and uh, looks fantastic it's a well shot movie but it's subject matter you know uh, custodian I suppose uh, of, uh, of a home for the mentally challenged he rapes them I mean it's not nice but uh, it's one of the extreme nasties of Hong Kong cinema that uh, does its, its job uh, very well I'd uh, consider it carefully before you venture into it so but uh, but yeah, uh, do, do you remember w- 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 watching those? Uh, not they're, they're not spin-offs, but uh, those sort of like uh, these movies wouldn't exist without Young and Dangerous, those Sexy and Dangerous Streets of Fury, Street Angels. Do you remember seeing those? I mean, it, I mean it's Louis Koo for heaven's sake, Streets of Fury, complete the collection. Yes, indeed. Uh, the one I haven't seen is the one with Moses Chan, um, and it's got the title that so many movies have. Uh, those were the days. But uh, yeah, the sexy and dangerous, uh, street angels, street of fury. Those are all. That's all good stuff. Yeah, I heard they they they're, they're good. I mean, I've seen two of them. Uh, them uh, not streets of fury, but they're good fun. They have a wit about them and uh, a sense of the exaggerated that worked uh, very well for me. And they they are good fun as well. Not not purely satirical takes on on uh, on young and dangerous, but uh, certainly uh, not as boring as some of those Andrew Lau films. That's for sure. Um, and you get the added bonus of uh, Francis mm, back in a and a dangerous film, <laughs> right? <laughs> so he's in sexy and dangerous. He's not ugly Kwan, but at least at least he's there, and that uh, makes uh, all the difference. Anyway, Dragon Fight earned six point eight million Hong Kong dollars during its run of twelve days, which was it sounds decent, like a decent take for twelve days only. But uh, regardless, it was not a challenge for big hits of the year like Wong Jing's uh, God of Gamblers, earning thirty seven million. The Chai and Fat melodrama All About Alone grossed 30 million, and the further movies uh, from Chai and Fat, like A Better Tomorrow Free, earned 18 million, and The Killer, John Woo's The Killer, matched those uh, earnings of 18 millions, uh, million as well. Uh, there was no nominations uh, at the Hong Kong Film Awards for Dragon Fight in the year when Jacob Chung's underseen drama Beyond the, Suns, Beyond the Sunset won Best Picture, Screenplay, Supporting Actress. And John Woo was awarded Best Director statue for um, his work on The Killer. Chai Fat Best Actor for his performance in All About Along. Maggie Chung won Best Actress for A Fishy Story. And Best Action Design went to Jackie Chan and his Stuntman Association for their work on Mr. Canton and Lady Rose, aka Miracles. And well-deserved it was. Some short opinions then, uh, Dragon Fight. Uh, Billy Tang may steer this boat to America, but he is remaining rather faithful to how a Hong Kong movie would sound and feel like. Uh, it means uh, Jet is on his needed transition towards stardom. He's not stuck in his Shaolin Temple ways, uh, so he gets to display some stuff, but uh, he's in the sort of middle phase of his uh, career here. 
And as is uh, Stephen Chow, and while none of them have performance that performances that represent, oh my god, what a breakthrough! This should have been a breakthrough. I think this path counts, and if you're interested in uh, following uh, a career, you need to examine this movie. But there's no obvious evidence of stardom being formed before our for our eyes. Uh, but there are some definite highlights of what an intense action performer Jet Li is, though. It's kind of it's sufficient, and will do as a as a simple and un, undemanding overseas actioner. But it isn't this gem that should, that deserves to be flagged as the breakthrough vehicle for for the leading man or leading ladies involved. So it's um it's a it's a B actioner on the streets of San Francisco with some fairly cool Hong Kong cinema action touches, but um, not a hidden gem in the uh, path to stardom part of the filmography if you will but but yeah over and done with perfectly sufficient and uh, neat here and there so in short there uh, what did you think of uh, dragon fight well i mean it's an interesting film because what you do have is you have these two young uh, you know up-and-comers who would probably get much bigger than this point in their career as anybody was really expecting and, and they're taking a gamble with them to take this, you know, production and set it overseas, which probably wasn't cheap, um, you know, and Hong Kong film at this point in time was growing, but it really wasn't the big international powerhouse that it would get to some years later in terms of, you know, people recognizing titles and, and you know, directors and actors and things like that. So it was an interesting choice. I, it doesn't really work well for me um, as a film because it feels very disjointed in places. It's got some great action set pieces. The story, I think, is kind of okay, but if you talk about the chemistry between the characters, I don't think it gets anywhere near the level of chemistry of, say, Danny Lee and Stephen Chow in, in the last film. And some things happen that just make me go... Huh? You know, at certain times. Uh, the, the biggest example that I can get to is there's one scene where uh, Jet Li's character is, uh, you know, illegal Im- immigrant, basically, because of some bad luck. He's working with Stephen Chow out of this sort of family grocery. And at one point, Stephen gets jumped by a, what looked like a biker gang, you know, in this alley. And, um, you know, so Jet Li's there and he he runs over to the rescue. And right before, uh, Stephen was trying to pick up this blonde girl in a well-dressed kind of, you know, business suit. And so these guys jump him. The girl kind of runs off camera. Jet Li goes over and starts, you know, uh, getting physical with, with the gang. And Stephen walks over and, and he's hanging out there with the girl. And they're like <laughs> laughing. And I'm like... Okay, what girl's going to hang around? Okay, at first, I thought she was part of it. You know, I thought she was like the, the bait and switch kind of thing. But then apparently not. She's, but she's just hanging there laughing with Steven as this fight's going. I'm like, who's going to hang around after somebody just, you know, somebody just tried to get robbed? I, I don't know. It's just weird moments like that that happen in some places that make me go, ah, okay, maybe I, I'm, they're trying for some comedy here, but it's just not landing right, maybe, or the pacing's somehow off. So yeah, it's it's a bit uneven for me at times. It it does draw upon Jet's youth performing demonstration of wushu in America in a way because the film opens with uh, this uh, troupe. I I think I spotted like Olympic logos on their jackets, suggesting that they were like the Beijing Olympic team. But I might the the, the print might not have been clear enough uh, in terms of that. So it might not have been, but they they, they are. A, 
Well, I, I should ask this. The subtitles make allusions to Hong Kong and mainland China, but my conclusion was that these characters came from mainland China. Yeah, um, Jet Li and his his uh, buddy, uh, played by Dick Wei, they're both from the mainland China Beijing team. And so they've come over to do some performances and, and they're not supposed to stay. <laughs> they're supposed to leave. Because at one point Jet says, like, well, there's no place like Hong Kong. Uh, so at the beginning of the film, but then as the m- melodrama beats off... Uh, well, it's better here than in China. Uh, then I realized, well, they no, they're not Hong Kongers. They're probably not. Yeah, but where, where I think Stephen's character w- was a Hong Konger, right? Um, and because he talks about you know going back to Hong Kong in a couple places. So, right. but uh, that uh, opening uh, sword and spear demo versus Dick Way, who's who's the action director on the film, is very exciting to see that uh, even in demonstration form. Is uh, is really cool to see, and uh, then you know the middle movie, uh, middle part of the movie that that's where pacing is a little bit off for me. But here in the beginning, it gets going fairly uh, fairly efficiently. Uh, the basic story beats of one half of the friendship uh, friend duo is uh, neglected, they is not sought after by the media, and not getting the spotlight, and, and that's the suitable role to give to Dick Way, who's a uh, you know, a vicious villain presence in a variety of films. He can do that very well and uh, dish out some cinematic violence uh, with the best of them. And he will seek his opportunities and gain status in another way, and he has it in him, apparently, to do it in a lethal fashion. So they're often running uh, with this um, relocation to find uh, new opportunities, and that's that pace in the initial stages of the film is uh, effective. And you you might think to yourself, well, where did this come from? This uh, desire of tigers to uh, do something else is not, uh, it doesn't feel uh, well, very welcome in China. All of that might have been brewing prior to the movie starting, so I buy it that uh, this was the tipping point. Uh, now he's in America, he looks for other opportunities. Uh, so that's, um, I, I can buy it, but uh, I can very much also understand that uh, his character might be undercooked in in other people's eyes in that regard but he's a dick way and he develops into a bad guy and uh, that's uh, good enough for me because it does provide some decent violence uh, decent uh, gritty martial arts and that also connecting back to tracking back to final justice uh, means that this film contains some comfort food uh, imagery and scenes uh, of uh, hong kong action cinema hong kong gangster films but on the road and that's comfort food, but also when Hong Kong cinema went on the road, it's kind of unashamedly appealing to me. Especially when gangster films went on the road. There's a movie called New York Chinatown. Simon Yam did a movie called Tongs, a Chinatown story set in America, I believe. So I always liked that when they relocated to do action cinema. Of course, they relocated to do dramas as well. Look at Autumn's Tale, obviously. Yeah. This uh, New York set... Uh, romantic film uh, so uh, that's some comfort food uh, uh, comfort food for me but 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 that whole uh, dramatic side to it that pops up both in the beginning and throughout the movie that uh, there are no opportunities in china we're caged in china and uh, if i go this way i won't be caged in america i might be a gangster but i won't be caged uh the m- money will change everything these are the opportunities and uh, I don't know if writer James Yun is injecting some 1997 handover stuff here too but um, 
I suppose it's intelligent enough and not terribly ham-fisted. It's melodramatic, yes, but there, there is some... I wouldn't say these are disingenuous concerns put on screen here. It might not be the right movie for it necessarily, but uh, you, you sit up and listen to some genuine concerns voiced here as uh, Dick Way and Stephen Chow and Jet Li have these kind of dialogues uh, throughout the film. So, I think it's tapping into... A couple things from the era. I mean, you talk a little bit about immigration and especially with the uh, the boss Marco character played by Henry Fong, where he's kind of like you know, he kind of looks down on on uh, the, these uh, immigrants from the mainland. There's an element there of that sort of classism thing um, that I think, you know, probably did exist and that people experienced. And of course, you've got just the whole kind of immigrant idea being pursued by authorities you know that that's all there on on some level too i mean again the main point of this film is to get jet Li into fights so everything's kind of you know pushing with that directive in mind so a lot of the other stuff is there's not a lot of good attention to detail i mean one of the things that and and we've done it on this show when we've looked at sort of hollywood films and their depictions of hong kong or asia you know and and how terrible they can be, you know, as as it leans in hard to stereotypes, right? You look at something like the Laura Croft movie with Daniel Wu, and the Hong Kong sequence, and how it's just it's just bad. They're still not uh, providing a little bit more healthier PC balance. I haven't I haven't seen it. Too, so it's it's it, it it's just so stereotypical. But at the same time, there's a reverse of that. I mean, you look at Detective Chinatown Two. Right. And Ugh. and the way they depict New York and a, it's I mean, that's a recent film, but it's doing a lot of the same stuff that this film does, you know, with sort of the over exaggeration of cops and and, you know, just the the, 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 the sort of attitude of Americans. And yeah, that stuff is there. And, and it, but this is like full blown exposition of that, you know, the, the bad overacting by the so many of the the foreign actors they bring in. And who are then post-dubbed in many cases. Boy, is this movie... Uh, uh, by the way, so, sorry, I, I, I don't dislike you discussing Detective Chinatown. I just got like this uh, involuntary groan I, because I got <laughs> I PTSD watching the first one. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, so I obviously no Detective Chinatown 2 or 3 for me, regardless if it's New York or Thailand or anything. So, uh, but, but you're right. Uh, the, the, this movie exists for... Uh, getting Jet Li into fights so uh, and Dick Wade the action director di- displays his ability as a performer being very swift and very you know very punchy and very kicky and having these quick takedowns the police officer that he, kill- that he kills that uh, has an appealing boom and quickness as delivered and and then you lead into where you you sort of know that you you're into you know you know despite serious concerns underneath that you're into a B-movie actioner, so it yes, it makes the movie laughable hearing accented uh, Chinese performers delivering English, and it's very foul, and uh, then you have Italian characters being very Italian, it's very exaggerated and very stereotypical, and uh, it's very R-rated English, but yeah, it's, a, it's an action film, but so, some of the voice dubbing one, it's so sweary, and two, that doesn't sound like that came out of that person's mouth it doesn't sound like it's the same age at all of uh, the dubber versus the performer and uh, things like that so yeah but it it's a love at the film stretch 
of the various meetings of the of the gangster organization heads and what have you and uh, i do have to say henry fong acting up a storm was very funny to me he doesn't mind portraying himself as a as a vile slob really you remember the scene in the restaurant i think nina lee is uh, there and uh, he's cleaning his uh, he clear he's clearing his plate like a good boy so the, the waiter comes up to henry fong and he's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. And then he takes a piece of bread or whatever and then dips that in sauce to get the last piece of sauce from the plate. Eats that. And then a new plate is put in front of him. <laughs> like his second dish. I thought I was like, yeah, Henry is leaning into this role. Being the producer and uh, actor, he also gets to make out with a chick. So it's good to be the king, I guess. Well, I mean, even even the later scene, which gets suggestively even more vile even though it's not on screen because he's with you know a a working girl i guess or a girlfriend even though nina lee is supposed to be his girlfriend he's with like this blonde girl and making out with her and nina lee's like saying okay i'm i'm out of here i'm gonna i'm gonna go out for the evening and he hits her from behind slams her up against the guard he's like no 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 you're going to be with us and you're gonna watch you know, he throws like a stack of papers at her. He's like, pick him up. And he like forces her on the ground. He's like, you do what I say. You're going to pick him up. And then it cuts to some completely different other scene. So did she have to watch? <laughs> that, that's what's implied because she didn't get away, you know. So it really, you know, it's it, it's really pushing sort of the the over-exaggerated vileness of, of this character. Yeah. Um, and he's very good. Like you said, he's very good in, in, in that role and, and, and portraying that kind of thing but uh where i think the in in terms of the villains in especially in contrast to the last film where i think the villains were so fun where i think this kind of falls apart is as as dick way's character tiger kind of goes in this opposite direction of jet lee's character who's trying to be upright and honest and by the end you get this what starts as a fight scene between the two of them but then ends up with tiger having to fight his own guys because he's being betrayed and in a traditional movie it would be the two of them kind of coming back together in friendship and working together right even though you probably figure that you know tiger is going to get his comeuppance at some point but it doesn't really happen that way what ends up happening is what i would say is very much non-climactic at least for tiger's arc and it's not redemptive either it's he was going this direction to be sort of a bastard and he continued going that direction, excuse my language and, and never, you know, never acquiesced, never said, Oh, I'm sorry or anything. He's no, this is my way. And, and that's the way it is. For, for, for a while, he seemed sincere uh, when he re, uh, re-meets uh, uh, Jimmy, Jet's character again, and he tries to do him a favor by uh, using his influence and he's having none of it so for a while it seems like you know the friendship is not completely severed but obviously it uh, it easily is because jimmy is standing firm and uh won't uh won't accept help or uh, uh then the missing cocaine and all of that uh, makes uh, everything turn into a massacre of course uh, um so yeah uh Go back to Stephen Chow. He's not stretching himself here. Uh, again, he's echoing some wisecracking young punk antics. He flirts with girls fairly obnoxiously. 
it, it's within those moments and a few moments here and there. At one point, he reacts to Jet Li kicking and he starts shouting, What a kick! And that delivery, you can sort of see the nonsense comedy delivery that I recognize from so many other movies that shouty part of uh, of Steven rear its head but it's it's in no way suggesting that this kid is doing something that I'd like to see utilized in another film <laughs> maybe a gambling film you know it, it doesn't suggest anything uh, for audiences watching this in 1989 that there's some hidden stuff here that uh, he's gonna take off or anything so it's more amusing to see him you know uh, speak uh, nasty English and uh and he's dubbing himself as far as I can hear, as far as I heard. So you can hear Stephen mix English and Cantonese. And uh, I, I've seen him being interviewed in English and he's quite comfortable doing that. So that's always uh, nice to hear, uh, again, that his early career involved uh, going into a dubbing studio to uh, to make sure it's him and uh, get Orton, like c- cement that sort of a cinematic identity that... Uh, he he does he, he didn't choose a a, uh, a like, like a firm dubber for himself like like I think Jackie did before he went things out so it's it's always been nice to to hear his voice and uh, as as up and down as the movie goes I do like the montage of uh, Dickway murdering uh, without remorse uh, he gets uh, into the the game of uh, bodyguard and assassin very quick including hanging hanging off a helicopter murdering people on a luxury boat and uh, it's an amusing uh, montage of him working and jet working you know <laughs> them doing different types of work honest and not so honest work uh, so, so I do enjoy that but it starts to get less snappy towards the middle as uh, Jet Li's new life is more expanded on we see him working trying to get a passport and uh, meeting Nina Lee of course uh, and for, you know, thank God they have uh, they had chemistry in real life. I wouldn't say there's chemistry here or anything. There, this pair up between uh, between Jet and Nina, but obviously we're happy for him, Paul, that uh, this was a life change. Uh, and I don't know how long it took for them to be uh, married necessarily, but um, I think it was about. Uh, I know he got divorced a year after this film came out because he was. I think he was married in '87 his first wife and they had two daughters and then i think he got divorced in 1990 i'm not sure if he remarried with nina that year same year or not um but yeah they've been together since they also have two daughters and um it's interesting because i guess you know a little bit of tabloidism here but uh, i guess he's got a good relationship with his first two daughters but he really keeps them out of the limelight Whereas his two daughters with Nina both have very high exposure. I don't know which one is older, Jane or Jada. But like he was, you know, Jane was a dancer in one of Andy Lau's concerts as a very young child. And, you know, he, and they've, they've both been in, this, in sort of the celebrity sideline spotlight as celebrity kids throughout their life. But his, his uh, first two daughters are very, very private. I support that. <laughs> I support privacy and, and anonymity. <laughs> and as long as he's being a you know being a good dad and and, so. and doing his duty and you know more power to him. I I always enjoy it. I mean, they, 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 this is not a tangent, but just a sort of matter of fact thing that uh, not that Stephen is not accomplished as an actor, but he hasn't focused on um, dramatic roles 
from from his uh, breakthrough and onwards. But that's what we got in Jets' career. Eventually, he showed some great promise in various beats within the Once Upon a Time in China series. But then um, he tried on pure dramatic roles, even uh, even abroad and in mainland China, in the likes of uh, Unleashed, aka Dan of a Dog and Ocean Heaven. So I, I, I like that transition to a very natural, dramatic actor. It looks good on him. It's not uh, this forced image where all you see is Wang Fei Hong trying to do drama. And uh, I, I definitely appreciate that uh, he's, he's uh, gotten his opportunities and taken them and uh, done so very well, as a matter of fact. Uh, I mean, Unleashed Danny Dog, yes, it has, has action, but uh, the underneath dramatic stuff, I think it's very, very worthwhile. And uh, that does not necessarily appear in an American film or an European film, but um, uh, it always struck a chord with me. Uh, quite like that. Uh, I mentioned that uh, Hong Kong cinema on the road is something uh, that I find appealing during this time. It's, it's comfort food as well. Not that Hong Kong cinema on the road means a new kind of professionalism, however. They, they're not shooting with a greater budget and uh, and a different kind of film crew that just elevates this to the level of a Hollywood, Hollywood production or anything. No, it, it, it still looks basic and, and uh, dramatically it is uh, as well. And they're, they're here to try and wow us through action and violence but the, the feeling of them being abroad is very neat for me i it's it's simply that for me and uh, street the, the street shootout involving gangsters and cops on a stakeout on the streets of san francisco it's nicely chaotic even if not premium technical standards coming from hong kong cinema or anything but there, there is some nice squibs here some intense editing and exchanges so uh, it, it's a little high point uh, in terms of uh, in terms of action and uh, then we get the mentioned melodrama, the drunken rants, the drunken uh, longing for the homeland, uh, way in America versus Hong Kong, way in America versus China. But uh, what I was missing was this story having a little bit more of a bite. It has violence, it has uh, fight scenes, it has actions, but uh, I wanted a little bit more of that. And uh, not that it purely transform the movie into something like four star or anything but the latter stages has some more slightly more shocking violence some greater stakes uh, some more melodrama connected that nothing terrific but bite and teeth i think looks better on the film because now they are deadly enemies they are mortal enemies and uh, therefore um, there there are not only going to be beatings here there, there's going to be killings here that, that that that's good enough for me. I'm I'm, I'm very much entertained by that. Uh, and and Dick Way continues to design these scenes as quick and sudden and brutal, like the deaths in for two, one main character and one supporting character. I, I'm I'm sure it doesn't. Yeah, I, I'm sure it didn't haunt you or anything. But uh, the, the the darker aspects make itself themselves known. And I thought that was. Uh, carry me nicely towards the end and the deadly stakes that that represented so i thought that was okay very much okay but uh, i don't know if you thought the movie found like like argued its case to be nasty and uh, deadly if you thought that was like a uh, something it injected well or not it kicks off kind of in the third act and i i wasn't expecting it even even though i've seen this film before you know when i rewatched it i was like oh i don't remember that uh it it kind of just really goes there and it crosses that line, especially for the Dick way character. And I guess it works in a sense. Um, 
one thing that I kind of came away feeling upon this watch was that this film was kind of trying to tap into uh, a better tomorrow, not in terms of the narrative, really, though you do have sort of these parallel stories of friends, but a lot of the aesthetic and and some not the martial arts action, but some of the gunplay action and, and some of the violence felt like it was kind of in the shadow of the a better tomorrow aesthetic. You got a lot of guys standing around in suits with the glasses on and slick back hair and stuff. So again, part of that feels like a different movie at times. There's even a beat where, where Stephen Chow drives away from danger and then returns. Yeah. To da- to to a dangerous uh, thing there like Chow Fat did in A Better Tomorrow. Yeah. So you 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 get get these different elements, you know, you get the Jet Li martial arts, the Stephen Chow slackery Uh, a little bit of violence, you know, a little bit of gunplay. And as parts, they kind of work. But when somehow when they push them all together, it just doesn't gel. Like I said, it feels disjointed. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, you when I talk about it, it's like I, I highlight sequences, but not necessarily the way they fit into uh, with the pieces earlier in the, in the film and with the latter pieces. Uh, but, but they're all highlight sequences that, that very much will do. But 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 connecting it all, it's uh, it, it is a little disjointed uh, because I I do enjoy the solid uh, cast dance on the steep uh, streets of San Francisco. Looks great, and obviously you have the hills there to uh, to do some uh, to do some uh, gnarly jumping. <laughs> so uh, and uh, the final showdown, uh, which doesn't take place in urban San Francisco, they've relocated to the countryside to a barn which uh, isn't them back in Hong Kong or anything. I think they're still abroad. And uh, the, the final showdown, has, it has some continual hard exchanges, uh, some quick and extended back and forth, short-range grounded, uh, some weapons uh, fighting there because uh, Tiger has a gym within the barn. I think you highlighted that, that he's uh, converted uh, this uh, barn to a gym and uh, there's a... Uh, the legendary weapons of China, I suppose, they're all across the walls, so therefore uh, some of them are going to be used. And that end fight is uh, is uh, cool and uh, good enough. Uh, Dick Way keeps matters grounded. He doesn't use, uh, he, uh, he, he doesn't go slightly fantastical on us or anything like that. So if I take away anything from Jet's performance here, it's, uh, his intensity as an action performer, I think, is uh, compelling. He's not phoning it in, and uh, that's that's definitely compelling. And uh, the final thing I wanted to to single out, they do cast like random Westerners for uh, for dialogue parts, as we highlighted. One person I think they scouted is a fellow called Mark Williams, which is uh, one of Marco's bodyguards and one of the opponents during the finale. He has a little action beat, uh, an action bit within the finale. And he comes off as uh, powerful as well, so uh, they might have scouted him uh, as an athlete on the circuit and uh, got him in there to utilize his martial arts expertise. And he appears in the master somewhere as well as a gang leader, so clearly they had him around in, in, for these two productions and maybe a local. And I looked uh, into his credits and he was one of the fighters in the characters in the fighting game Pit Fighter that used the digitized performance a la Mortal Kombat, and he was one of the... Uh, those actors and therefore a character in the game that got into Pit Fighter. So so that was a little like, yeah, he looks good. And uh, he didn't have an extensive career or anything, but uh, he was in a in a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie to a degree, Lionheart. But, uh, but yeah. Uh, so plus, uh, pleasing enough, uh, even though it's not a full, fully fleshed out, uh, fully uh, 
completed, executed film or anything, but uh, some highlights uh, makes it a decent enough watch, and especially if you're interested in following the trajectory leading into action superstardom and comedic superstardom. And I think there's only one joke about Nina Leachie's bosom in this one. I think someone sort of offhandedly says nice breasts. So for once she was spared the the, the, the sort of expected uh, gags at her expense or whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that's the end of my notes. Anything else you want to say? Uh, yeah, a couple things. One thing that happens at the end without giving too much of a spoiler, there's a scene between two characters right at the end that seems like it's an extension of the narrative as the credits are rolling. But then there are other scenes from, you know, as Hong Kong was common to do during this period of just scenes from the film, right? Well, actually, there's two scenes. There's there's a scene between two characters. Then there's a scene between a character that's no longer around and, and uh, another character that I didn't see. Okay. So, but it's, it was like an outtake or something. And then there's other scenes just from the film. So it's, it's like this weird, like, okay, is that first scene an extension of the narrative or was that something that happened before that got cut? There's, there's a little bit of a head scratching going on there when the credits roll, but um, it's not that essential. And again, you think about the time period, this is filmed, as you said, uh, probably in 88 released in, in 89, a year that uh, Stephen Chow had three films. Come 1990, uh, he has 11 films. So this is this is on sort of the cusp of of the Stephen Chow boom. It would be interesting to, for a longer discussion to think about this in political terms because what you have going on in 89 and sort of the sentiment change of Hong Kongers in Hong Kong come 1990 and what they were really craving for in terms of entertainment as distraction. It may have been a case that Stephen Chow was really in the right place at the right time with the right kind of entertainment that people needed during this period to really get their minds off of what was happening. Yeah, because I don't think the box office is terrible for such a short run either. Uh, Six million surprised me, to be honest. So you wonder if that is on the strength of him being established on TV. And, And as you said, people looking for this entertainment at this time in 89. When in the year was Tiananmen again? Uh, uh, six four. Right, right. So, so this is a few months old. June. Yeah. So, um, and I mean, comparably, this is even less than um, Final Justice, right? Wasn't that around eight million? Uh, that around eight point nine, uh, but it uh, had a longer run. Uh, yeah. So um, I I wonder those six point eight for Dragon Fight is actually not bad for twelve days. What you're building into um, is all for the winner. You know, God of Gamblers two, Tricky Brains, Top Bet. I mean, really, uh, starting starting in 1990 is really when the Stephen Chow that most people tend to know really starts to kick off, and you know, just goes on from there. Yeah, you never really uh, tapped into this because again, this character. Dragon Fight Final Justice's character because why would you? There, there's no need for that anymore. The cinematic identity is born now. So I'm running with uh, that and then taking creative uh, control as the decade uh, as the decade uh, rolled along. Uh, so so yeah, and, and as you said, burning his bridges along the way. 
with uh, with performers and what have you and uh, producers but, but hey it's another story um all right so as for availability of uh, dragon fight it uh, had a uh, laser disc and vhs release in hong kong but reportedly didn't it did not have subtitles in america tai seng apparently did a uh, subtitle vhs that was cropped so that, that's out there in some shape or form but uh, today uh, you can still get uh, via germany under the title defector concrete title that speaks to this film it uh, it connects to this film uh, you can find a dvd uh, that's english friendly it has both uh, cantonese and english subtitle with english subtitles it has an english dub german dub of course it, it it's kind of a hazy soft print but it's still available very cheaply on uh, german amazon but uh, as you alluded to privately you had seen a uh, more sparkling shiny restored hd print in some shape or form from somewhere maybe from warner archive because they might have had this but regardless i've heard that a blu-ray is planned for germany that will feature english subtitles original language and english dub like dimension dvd so um you might want to hold off for a little bit to see what is announced uh, during 2022 from germany so um the film is um, not obscure right now and will get an upgrade of sorts um, shortly or later in the year of 2022. Yeah, and you may want to cut this part out because I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but um, I don't know how official that is. You know, what the the, the sort of online watch party that uh, I guess Brian Kirby and, and, and some others put together. Yeah, because the, because the HD print wouldn't uh, be public domain or anything. Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't. But it looked it looked really clean and and crisp. So, um, and I, you know, uh, that they they tw- do a, do a tweet along as they watch, and I throw in the occasional comment. I, I was gonna ask, you know, where did the print come from at some point? But I, when I was watching, uh, had kidlet emergency, and I had to stop watching, and I couldn't get back to it. And they're usually, you know, they usually leave it up for. Uh, about 24 hours i think before they pull it down and i wasn't able to get back to it so I for the first rewatch i only saw the first half of it and then i then rewatched all of it again um for this um for this uh, discussion and i had seen it before but i'd forgotten so much about it but um yeah that print they had it just looked pristine it looked really clean especially the opening because when I was when I was watching the opening this time, you know that opening sort of wushu fight between uh, Dick Way and and Stephen, or sorry, Dick Way and Jet Li, and then when Stephen shows up, uh, all of that looks so crisp and clear and clean. It was um, really noticeable. Anyway, uh, we are done for this episode. Uh, early Stephen Chow and early Jet Li, Jet Li examined. So I hope you enjoyed it uh, for all your podcast on Fire Network needs, including the back catalog of this show and uh, all our examinations of of uh, various kinds uh, go to podcastonfire.com check out the bonus episode the archive that's uh, website exclusive uh, contact us podcastonfire at googlemail.com if you have any feedback you want to share you can do so on social media as well we're on Facebook Twitter Instagram get us on Apple Podcasts Stitcher Radio Spotify and wherever you get podcasts so I think that's us so thank you Paul for um, for taking part in uh, in this um examination not not the worst movies to uh to re rewatch uh but uh i i i make you this promise even if you suggest it there will be no detective chinatown retrospective
Oh. I'm not sitting there again. <laughs> I'm not doing it again. It was long too. He he was very annoying. Uh, uh, what's he called? Wang Baoshang? Yeah. I mean, how, how, have you seen all three? I've not seen the third one. Oh, um, no, but I've, I've yeah. Like, I'll and get to it eventually. Two and a half hours of his voice and like, go away. <laughs> uh, I was like, well, he plays. He plays in mainland China, clearly. That's like uh, box office gold. And th- those movies make money like you read about. It's like they, they make uh, Wolf Warrior money. Mm. So who am I to complain? But God damn it. <laughs> so thankfully we have a choice. Free choice. We and, do. And yes, I, do. I say I, I say no. So you, you can sit there and record record by yourself and do a retrospective that way. But no, I'm not doing <laughs> it. I'm not doing it, Paul. Uh, and I say that in like four ways. Like, well, but what if you do it like this? Okay, fine. And I'll watch it. I won't be happy. <laughs> we're, we're done for this episode. And uh, I've been Kenobi with Rewards, Paul Fox. So say goodbye, buddy. Thank you. Thank you and bye-bye.